Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Alex Hitchcock, president of the Human Capital Association at Cornell. Today, I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Mike Waldman, a professor of economics at the Johnson Graduate School of Management. In the episode, Professor Waldman reviews his decades of research in labor economics, including the different roles that job promotions serve and the benefits of lateral moves for employees within an organization. He also discusses his research in rational thinking, product bundling, planned obsolescence, and autism. I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Jonathan Tin, and today I'm excited to welcome Professor Michael Waldman, the Charles H. Dyson Professor of Management and Professor of Economics at Johnson. Professor Waldman received a Bachelor's of Science in Economics from MIT in 1977, and a PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania in 1982. He is widely recognized as a top researcher in the fields of industrial organization, labor economics, and organizational economics. Professor Waldman's work has been published in many top industry journals, including the American Economic Review and the Journal of Political Economy. Since 2009, he has served as an editor at the Journal of Labor Economics. In his over 28 years at Cornell, He has chaired three different MBA curriculum reviews, and in 2009, he was part of Cornell's Strategic Planning Advisory Council, which developed the long-term strategic plan for Cornell University. At Johnson, he currently teaches the microeconomics core class and has won multiple awards for his teaching. Professor Waldman, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. So we could probably talk for hours about the research you've done over the course of your career but I think they might kick us out of the studio. So we'll do our best to cover everything today. And I thought we would start off with your paper on rational thinking. A large part of economics and business education relies on the theory of rational choice. The theory that when an individual makes a choice, that they will select the option that creates the greatest benefit for themselves. You, however, have defined a set of scenarios where this may not always be the case, such as early career choices or purchasing a new piece of technology. Could you discuss what got you interested in this question of rationality and explain some of your findings? Well, when I first started, when I was still assistant professor at UCLA, there was a lot of discussion about rational thinking, you know, the rationality assumption. Dick Thaler's work, who was here and eventually won Nobel Prize for work, was just starting to catch on. And one of the issues that people thought about was, well, even if certain people don't behave in a rational way, does that really matter? Is it the case that If just some people behave in a rational way, the market will behave in a rational way. So a lot of people at UCLA and more generally in the profession were thinking about that. And it got me thinking. And in fact, what happened was that I was driving to work one day and I ran into a traffic jam on the 405, which is a main highway in LA. And when I ran into that traffic jam, it sort of started making me think about how that traffic jam might inform the answer to that question. And what I developed with a co-author, John Haltweiger, who's now at the University of Maryland, was a way of thinking about when is it that rational players, a subset of rational players, will make the market behave in a completely rational way, even though some of the players aren't completely rational, while when is it when that's not going to be the case. And that traffic jam, I won't go into the details of my thinking, but the traffic jam spurred me to think along the lines of what's called strategic substitutability 
and strategic complementarity. And what John and I did was we developed a theory, which we published a number of papers, first published in an AER paper, American Economic Review paper in 1985, and extended in a couple of later papers. And the theory was basically, if the market is characterized by strategic substitutability, which means that the more people who choose an activity, the smaller the return to that activity, then in those types of markets, just having a few rational players will be enough to make the market look rational. And that's kind of the traffic jam situation that I saw when I was driving. But in contrast, if you have a market with strategic complementarity, the more players you choose an activity, the bigger the return to the activity, then just having a few rational players won't make the market fully rational. Because what happens is some people who aren't fully rational make mistakes, and then the rational people, instead of undoing the mistakes, tend to reinforce the mistakes, and so the market doesn't behave in a very rational way. And we published those papers back in the 1980s. In the last 10 or 15 years, there have been a number of experimental papers looking at that basic idea. When does the market seem to behave in a more rational way or evolve in a more rational way? And what they found is that the basic idea that John and I developed in those papers is actually a very good predictor of when the markets tend to follow kind of the game theory rational assumption and when the markets tend to not do that and only move to the rational equilibrium in a very slow fashion. It's kind of like throwing good money after bad in the stock market. And in a sense, some people have tried to apply to the stock market. The stock market, I think, could be applied there. The stock market gets pretty complicated. I wanted to switch gears to a topic that gets a lot of people excited, which is job promotions. Prior to your research, the prevailing idea was that promotions were designed to allocate workers to the most efficient positions. However, your research indicates that promotions can serve as an important signal to the outside world. Can you talk a little bit about this research and what it means for a firm when they decide on who to promote? So that paper or that literature group, there's a whole literature on promotion signaling, and it grew out of a paper from my dissertation that I published very, very early in my career, 1984. And it was actually my job market paper, which means the paper that I tried to sell myself when I was first on the market. And the basic idea is simple. The basic idea is I hire you and I get to observe how good you are. I get to observe your productivity. The other firms don't get to directly observe that. And so I see, oh, you're really a smart guy. So I decide to promote you. And when I decide to promote you, the other firms get to see that. And so when the other firms see the promotion, then they say, hey, Jonathan's really smart. I'm willing to offer him more money. And so what that means is that when I promote someone, I'm sending this positive signal about that worker's ability, that worker's attributes. The other firms are going to see that positive signal. They're going to be willing to pay more for that worker. So I'm going to have to pay more when a worker is promoted. And what that also means is that there's going to be a distortion in the promotion process. As you said, prior to my paper, most of the papers talking about promotions, we're talking about efficient assignment. I'll put someone in job X when that worker is going to be more productive in job X. I'll leave them in job Y when they'll be more productive in job Y. What the promotion signaling literature shows is that doesn't always work that way. Because I send a positive signal about your ability when I promote you and I have to pay you a higher wage, if you're just a little bit more productive on the high-level job, I say, you know, you're going to be more productive on that high-level job, but I'm going to have to pay you more, so I'm going to pass. So what those papers show is that you only get promotions when the worker's a lot more productive on the high-level job because the firms are trying to decrease their wage bill. 
There's been a lot of empirical work on that research also. The empirical work basically finds results consistent with the theory. And you also wrote an extension of that the original paper examining how the signaling concept might differ depending on the education level. As someone who left the workforce to pursue a graduate business degree, I'm particularly interested to hear what the relationship is between promotions and level of education. How are the things related? So the basic idea actually appears first in a... So my original paper was in the Rand Journal of Economics in 1984, and then there have been a number of extensions of the basic idea. And one of the nicer extensions is a paper written by a fellow named Dan Bernhardt, which was published in 1995. And one part of his argument was that if you have a worker who has a higher education level, then that promotion distortion I was just talking about is smaller. And so what that means is if I could have two workers where the lower educated worker is more productive, but it's actually the higher educated worker who gets promoted. Now, why is that? Well, think about it. I hire two people, one from Cornell, one with an MBA from Cornell, and one from an MBA from a no-name school. Well, everybody knows that the Cornell MBAs are really, really smart, and so that when I promote the Cornell MBA, the signal that I'm sending is pretty small. Signal that I'm sending is pretty small, the wage increase due to the signals, pretty small, and so the promotion distortion is very small. On the other hand, if I hired an MBA from a no-name school, then people aren't so sure that that person's that smart. And so when I promote that person, I'm sending a much more positive signal. The wage increase due to the signal is much larger. And so now the incentive for me to distort the promotion decision is much larger. And so what it says is that the return to education is not just the human capital. The return to education is also you increase the promotion probabilities, even holding ability fixed. So that was a theoretical argument that appeared in Dan Bernhardt's paper. I have a paper with Jed Devaro that was published in 2012, and there have been a number of follow-up papers to that paper, which basically said, let's take Dan's idea, which was an extension of my original idea, and let's go to the data and see whether the promotion decisions actually seem to follow the argument. And there are now probably half a dozen papers looking at this basic idea and finding lots of empirical support consistent with the idea. So in our original paper, we looked at a financial services firm, kind of medium-sized U.S. bank, and found it within that bank. And then, as I said, there have been a lot of follow-up studies looking at various different data sets, multi-firm data sets, cross-firm data sets of a lot of firms within a country, all finding evidence consistent with this basic argument. I wonder if this could be extended to potentially unconscious bias or discrimination in the workplace in terms of holding people back from promotions. There are actually some papers taking the basic promotion signaling argument and trying to apply it to discrimination arguments. So there's a paper that was actually published in the 80s by Milgram and Oster, or two well-known economists, not looking exactly at the promotion signaling argument, but something related. And then there's actually just a recent paper was published just a couple months ago doing exactly what you're saying was published in the Rand Journal, which is where I published my original study. Another extension of this signaling analysis involves the idea of promotion tournaments. What is a promotion tournament, and how does promotion signaling play a role? So a very well-known idea in what's called personnel economics, which is sort of the economics of careers inside firms, is this idea of promotion tournaments. And this goes back to a paper published by Eddie Lazier and Sherwin Rosen, who were at the time a well-known Chicago economist. Sherwin's passed away since then. Eddie's now at Stanford. So before that paper, the basic idea of promotions was promotions serve as an allocation mechanism. And their basic idea is, look, if I look in the world, 
it's clear that promotions serve a second role. It's clear that promotions also serve as an incentive device. They constructed a model where the firm commits to a high wage associated with the promotion position, and then workers compete for the promotion position, and whoever produces the highest output gets promoted and gets that high wage, and that creates an incentive. How is promotion signaling related? Well, if I think about the world, it's not so clear that firms can commit to these future wages associated with promotion. And so there's a literature, I've contributed to the literature, a couple of my former students have contributed to the literature, which says, well, look, here's an alternative way that promotions can serve an incentive device. Promotions can serve as an incentive device because of the promotion signaling argument. When you get promoted, you get the signal. You get the signal, you get a high wage increase. I already talked about that. So you take that basic idea and now you embed in that model or in that kind of model an effort decision. And now you get a promotion incentive, a promotion tournament type of incentive without any commitment on the part of the firm. Rather, the incentive is coming through the signal and that's what's stirring workers to work harder. It's the desire to get that signal which is then what drives the higher promotion wage. And there's actually been some recent work trying to look at, if I look at real-world firms, what I call classic promotion tournaments, the Lazier Rosen idea, which is going on, or is it this market-based promotion tournaments, which is the signaling argument? And the literature is a little bit mixed concerning which mechanism is at work. My sense is actually both mechanisms are at work, and people are still trying to figure out kind of pulling those two apart. So far, we've discussed signals such as promotions or job title, things which are publicly observable. But there are other signals that are self-reported and harder to prove, such as accomplishments on a resume. Does the impact of signals change depending on which bucket they fall into? Well, I'm working with one of the junior faculty at Cornell, Thomas Youngbauer, on a paper on just that idea. We're almost done with the paper. We're hoping to be done, have a complete draft in about a month. The basic idea is what you were saying, which is, if I look in the world, there's what's called resume padding. It's a very common activity. What's resume padding? Resume padding is the idea that I have a resume and I stretch the truth. I don't always tell exactly, you know, I might put something there that's not quite truthful. It's very common. There's lots of evidence that this occurs. If you go to the economics literature, starting with Mike Spence, who won a Nobel Prize for a paper he published in the early 70s on signaling. If you look at the economics literature, signaling, particularly in the labor market, always assumes that the activity, the signal itself, is publicly observed. And so what Thomas and I are doing is saying, well, look, that's unrealistic. So as you know, when I teach, I always talk about the fact that I was an undergraduate at MIT. The students take that as given. I could be lying. I could have gone to Harvard. Now the question is, how is that important? It turns out we get some quite surprising results in the paper. One result maybe is not too surprising. The second result I think is actually quite surprising. If you think about the signaling, one of the main results in signaling is there's a distortion. So if I think about education signaling, which is what Spence originally talked about, what you get is you get overinvestment in education. Why do you get overinvestment in education? It's because the education choice serves two roles. You get human capital, and you get signal to be in a higher ability group. And so it's that signal which creates the overinvestment. And what we show is that if you have resume padding, so if the education is not publicly observable, but rather self-reported, then the incentive, that overinvestment in education, starts getting smaller and could actually completely go away. 
And what's surprising about it is I now say, well, from a social welfare standpoint, is resume padding a bad thing? Well, it turns out that it could actually be a good thing. Why could it be a good thing? It's because it reduces that overinvestment. And so a lot of the papers kind of showing the first result and then sort of talking about, well, when might we think that this sort of reduced overinvestment result might be the dominant factor? And so the resume padding could actually improve outcomes rather than decrease outcomes. And we actually talk about relating it to that, I think it was a Leonard DiCaprio movie. Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can. So we actually talk about that and sort of pull a story from the book that's actually a true story and talk about, well, if the task is unchanged by the signal, if the low signal, the high signal gets you in the same task, that's where social welfare might actually go up. But if your kind of misrepresentation puts you in a task you shouldn't be at, then maybe that's not going to be such a good thing. So in the book he talks about at some point, he said he had a medical degree and wound up being in charge of a bunch of doctors. And at some point, some nurse said, oh, we have a blue baby, which I guess is a baby who's lacking oxygen. And he had no idea. And at that point, he realized maybe this is not a good thing for him. And he quit that job. In the paper, we sort of talk about that as being an example of when resume padding is not going to be a positive in terms of social welfare. But if you're not being put in a position where you're lacking key information, then resume padding could actually, at least theoretically, actually improve things. And so it seems job to job, it really depends on whether a specific attribute is really a signal versus a true indicator. In the signaling literature, the question is, does the signal get you into a different job? And is it a job where not having the required information that you would have learned in school can be very important? As you say, I think it's sort of, you have to think about it case by case to see when is that likely to be more important, less important. A pilot, clearly it's important. Doctor, clearly important. Maybe professor, not so important. I'm not so sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) So another key area of your research is human capital. And the theory of human capital traces back to noted economist Gary Becker, who developed ideas of firm-specific human capital and general human capital, with later extensions into industry-specific human capital. However, you have mentioned that you thought this might not cover everything. How did your research extend the existing analysis of human capital to coin the term task-specific human capital? Gary Becker's a very famous economist. You know, his papers were very important. But in the back of my mind, it always sort of didn't seem quite that his classification of general versus firm-specific human capital captured all the important elements of how I think about human capital. And I played with that a number of times in my career, never kind of got it right. And then about 20 years into my career, I was working on a paper with Bob Gibbons, who was at MIT. And we introduced in the paper to make a particular point, a different type of human capital. And we called it in the paper, task-specific human capital. And then we pulled that section out and published it in what's called the AER Papers and Proceedings in 2004. And I kind of played with it a little bit. And I came with the term task-specific human capital. And it's basically an idea that goes all the way back to Adam Smith. Gary Becker is one of the most famous economists in the last 50 years. But if you want to trump Gary Becker, you say, well, let's go back to Adam Smith. What did Adam Smith talk about? In his Wealth of Nations, he talked about lots of different things. But one of the things he talked about, which a lot of students still read, is his pin factory example. In his pin factory example, which was, he was talking about returns to specialization, he said, well, suppose you had 10 workers, and suppose producing a pin was 20 tasks. And so each worker was doing all 20 tasks. And he said, well, you know, that's not going to be efficient. The better thing to do is to have each worker do a single task get really, really good at that task, 
And then instead of the 10 workers producing 100 pins a day, those 10 workers might produce 1,000 pins a day. And so that was this return to specialization. And, and it's basically the idea of learning by doing. The more you do something frequently, the better you get at. So it's kind of learning by doing at the task level. And that was sort of what Bob and I had kind of introduced into our paper, which to make a particular point. But then as I was thinking about it, I sort of realized, well, that's kind of the thing that's been bugging me for the last 20 years. Actually, I think the main idea, the main contribution was the name. There were lots of people working on human capital. That was Becker. Then there were lots of people working on learning by doing, separate literature. And they didn't talk to each other very much. But clearly, learning by doing is a type of human capital. And so what we did was say, let's think about learning by doing at the task level. That's where I think it's really important. And let's call it task-specific human capital. So now the human capital people can't ignore it. And so we published this paper, very short paper in 2004. And at first, it didn't get too many sites. And now my sense is it's in a few years, it's going to be my most highly cited paper because it's kind of forced the human capital people and learning by doing people to come together and realize that this is all one large literature and that lots of phenomena can be explained by thinking about human capital at the task level rather than thinking about it as either general human capital or firm-specific human capital. And as somebody gets more and more specialized, as they move up, they may have less of those skills to manage a broad set of teams. So it's been extended a little bit into yeah. lateral movements. So there are a number of more recent papers that kind of take the idea and sort of develop it in terms of thinking about the promotion process. There's a paper by Eddie Lazier, who I mentioned earlier. There's a paper by Fredrickson and Cato, which say, if I look at people at the top, the CEOs, what did they do earlier in their career? What they did earlier in the career was they did lots of different things. So tasks of human capital, you'd say, well, there's return to specialization. That's kind of going back to Smith. But if I'm thinking about a whole firm, like a job ladder with someone on the top, well, the person on the top can probably do their job better if they at least know a little bit about all the things going on below them. And so then you don't want specialization. Then you want someone who's got kind of balanced skill set. And so Eddie talked about that. Fredrickson Cato talked about that in terms of kind of looking at people at the end of their career. And I have a recent paper, it's forthcoming, with a former student, which says, instead of just looking at the people at the end of the career and sort of seeing what they did earlier, let's model the promotion process itself, thinking about that. And what we show is that lateral moves are used to basically build skills so you're going to be promoted. So when you see someone laterally move, the main prediction of the models, if you see someone laterally moved, then they're probably a promotion should be much higher because the lateral move itself is not going to increase their productivity today because they're losing out on the value of the human capital they've already developed. It's only later when they get promoted that this lateral move winds up being quite useful and makes them more productive. And so the main prediction, we actually have three predictions in the paper, but the main prediction is if you see someone laterally moved, their probability of a future promotion should be quite high. And we find very strong evidence consistent with that. Plays in a little bit with the MBA rotational programs. Yeah. So you could think of rotational programs as being kind of the basic same idea. In the uh, rotational programs, it's sort of more systematic. It's more structured. But it's the basic same idea that you're rotating around a set of jobs so that, A, you might kind of learn which job you like, but also that's going to make you more productive later on when you get to a high-level position at the firm. 
Moving to your research and bundling of products, you've examined how incumbent firms attempt to maintain dominance in their core products through the use of bundling. An example from your research is Microsoft's bundling of Internet Explorer with Windows, which was later the subject of a famous antitrust case. We are seeing a resurgence of bundling among today's tech companies, so how should we as managers and consumers think about bundling or tying of products? Bundling and tying have lots of uses. So there are lots of efficiency reasons for tying and bundling. There are lots of more market structure, market power reasons for tying and bundling. In terms of what I did, kind of let me put it in some context. So the main paper on this topic was a paper I wrote with Dennis Carlton, who's a well-known industrial organization economist at Chicago. He was a chief economist at the Justice Department at some point, has been head of one of the large antitrust consulting firms. Before we wrote our paper, the basic idea, people would sort of think about, well, if I have a monopoly in one market, is there a return for me to tie some other product and try to, in a sense, transfer my market power from the primary product to this other market, which might be more competitive? And there's lots of literature on that by various well-known economists. So kind of one thing you said, which is not quite correct, we actually wrote this paper in the middle of the Microsoft case. So Dennis went to a conference and he kind of came back. I was visiting at Chicago at the time. He came back and said, Mike, I think this is sort of an interesting topic to work on. And so the Justice Department was making an argument that was saying Microsoft was using the tying to protect, to preserve monopoly power they already had in Windows. So it was a completely different argument, but there was no theory paper. There's no economics paper to justify their argument. And Dennis and I constructed a theory model showing how that Justice Department argument could make sense. And that paper's been widely cited, and it's actually been used to think about more recent cases where the Justice Department is thinking, should we allow this type of merger, shouldn't we? And kind of thinking about the implications for kind of this preservation of market powers, that's something we want to allow. So you were recently quoted in the New York Times article on planned obsolescence, where the author contrasts his devotion to his trustee, Cassius Risroch, <laughs> which has remained largely unchanged for many years, to the rise of the smart wristwatch, or in this case, the Apple Watch, which is on its fifth iteration in under five years. So could you walk us through what are the different forms of planned obsolescence and how does this impact a firm's R&D decisions? The idea of planned obsolescence goes quite a ways back. And if you go back to kind of when I first started in the profession, there weren't really models of this. So there's this kind of idea that firms have an incentive to make old units obsolete. But there was no really well-grounded theory papers showing how that could work. And then a nice paper was written by uh, Jeremy Pulo, who's a Stanford economist, showing a model with durability choice and showing how you might, because of a, what's called a time and consistency problem, which is kind of a technical game theory concept, because of a time and consistency problem, the firms might have an incentive to not put as much durability into their products as would be socially optimal. And he called that a model of planned obsolescence. And at the end of the paper, he said, well, but if I think about the real world, planned obsolescence is probably really more about new product introductions than it is about durability choice. So that's where I came in and I constructed a model showing that the firm has an incentive to introduce new products that make old units obsolete. But in my original idea, in the original paper, which was published in 1993, that actually hurt the firm. So that's actually not consistent with the Apple story. What I think is actually going on in the Apple story is a, a later paper I wrote, which didn't have planned obsolescence in the title. And the later paper I wrote sort of took the basic idea of 
price discrimination and applied it to a durable goods setting and showing that what you want to do is you want to reduce the quality of the old units. So you want the, the units to kind of depreciate more quickly than might be socially optimal. You want to do that because that allows you to charge a higher price for the new units. And so when I think about actual planned obsolescence of the world, although it's not the papers with planned obsolescence in the title, that's actually the one that I think is most informative about what's going on when you're thinking about planned obsolescence, which is, you know, it's sort of like in my class, I talk about airline seats where you make the economy seats really miserable so that you can charge more for the first class seats. And I think that this kind of idea that price discrimination applied to durable goods is really kind of a very powerful way of thinking about what's driving plant obsolescence in the world. You're making the used units, the older units, those are the lower quality units. And to the extent that you can drive down their quality, you can get more for the new units. And so I think that's what I think of as the probably the most powerful way of thinking about plant obsolescence in real world settings. Yeah, it's less about the functional usage of the unit, but rather kind of the perception of the customer or consumer. Well, it could be a perception issue. It could be an actual difference in quality. I think that kind of consistent with what you're saying is that when you introduce the new unit, you want to drive down the perceived quality of the used unit, which could be a function of kind of an advertising campaign, could be a function of changing the styling to make something look new versus make the old unit look lower quality because of styling differences between the new and the used unit. I agree with you. It could be quite a bit of a perception issue. And as more and more products or services are bought as a subscription, how do the dynamics of planned obsolescence change? In some of my argument, in some of the literature, the problem goes away when the units are rented rather than purchased. And the planned obsolescence is actually lowering the firm's profits in kind of the standard story. So you can think about the subscription model as being, a, in a sense, a way of renting. And so in the theory, that would actually improve the firm's profit and also eliminate some of the incentive for the planned obsolescence. I think that there's a lot there, but I, it actually hasn't been developed all that well in the literature. I've been working on that topic as much recently. Maybe I should go back and work on that particular idea. Now, there is an area in which you've conducted research that we haven't touched on yet and is quite different from your other work. In the early 2000s, you began studying the connection between early childhood TV viewing and the rising rates of autism. What motivated your research in this area and what were your findings? I started working on this for a very personal reason. So my son was diagnosed with autism. This was in 2003, just before his third birthday. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but basically he completely recovered. So it was kind of a regressive form of autism, meaning he looked fine and then he started to show symptoms over the course of a few months. And when that happened, we made some changes and I spent a lot of time with him, put him in a lot of special programs, et cetera. And within six months to a year to two years, he completely recovered. During this time period, I came up with a conjecture, hypothesis. And my hypothesis was that in my son's case, and more generally, that screen viewing or television viewing had triggered. There was an increase in his television viewing just before he regressed. And I conjectured that maybe that had been a contributing factor. And so when he did so well, I kind of came up with this hypothesis that maybe that wasn't just the case in my son's case, but maybe that's a more general phenomenon. I went and looked at the literature 
of the medical literature. And the medical literature was very clear in saying that that was not a factor. So basically, the medical literature said nothing in the family environment is a factor. I then kind of looked a little deeper to see, well, what do they base that on? And I didn't find any studies. So the claim was that television watching wasn't a factor, but it wasn't really based on any particular studies. So that made me a little skeptical because I know that science in general sometimes goes down a wrong path. And when it goes down a wrong path, sometimes it gets stuck in the wrong spot. And so after my son got better, I decided to take a look to see what I could find. I brought in uh, Sean Nicholson, who's a well-known health economist at Cornell. And we did a study trying to see, can we find evidence suggestive? I'm not a medical doctor, so I couldn't run a clinical study. So what we did was we said, well, what are factors which are likely correlated with television watching? And let's see if those factors are correlated with autism. Because if television watching is a trigger, then you would expect something that's correlated with television watching for young children to then be correlated with autism. We focused on two factors. We focused on cable television subscription rates, and we focused on precipitation weather. And with the idea that if the cable television subscription rate is higher, then we'd expect the children in that area to be watching more television, the young children. We would think that if there's more precipitation, the children would be spending more time indoors. And again, they're likely watching more television. So we looked at various states and counties and to see, was there a correlation between these two factors and the autism diagnosis rates in these areas consistent with this idea? And we found actually quite consistent evidence. And we published a paper in a medical journal in 2008. We had a couple of National Bureau of Economic Research working papers. And the goal was to try to get the medical community to start looking at this idea, because if television or screen viewing is actually a trigger, clearly that's something that should be known and communicated to parents. And so in response to your findings, there was a considerable amount of skepticism from the medical community. Many wondered what an economist's role is in trying to solve the autism puzzle. Could you first summarize some of their skepticism and then how you responded? And what did you take away from this experience? Well, the skepticism was, I'm an economist, how could I know? The view was, I'm not qualified to analyze this subject. There were also some complaints about the statistical evidence. Most of the people making those complaints didn't really understand the statistical techniques we were using. So I didn't put any weight on that. Going back to my responses, the scientific method is the scientific method. It's the same scientific method whether you're talking about economics, whether you're talking about medicine. It's the same scientific method. What do you do? You come up with a hypothesis. And the hypothesis generates testable predictions. You look at the data and see whether the data is consistent with those testable predictions. As I said, when my son got ill, I looked at the medical literature. You know, the medical literature concluded television has no effect. Television is not a culprit. It's not a trigger. Then I looked, okay, what's the scientific evidence that the doctors, that the medical community is basing that conclusion on? And what I found was nothing. There were no studies. They had reached a conclusion based on nothing. Look, I went to MIT. Maybe they went to better schools than I did, but I think MIT gave me a pretty good education in how science works. And you can't validly reach a conclusion based on no evidence. My response is just basically ignore because they were asserting something they had no evidence for. Now, just to kind of finish the story, there are now doctors and autism therapists who have 
come to the same conclusion I came to all across the world. So I'm in contact with people in the U.S. I'm in contact with people in France. I'm in contact with people in Iran. I'm in contact with people in Romania who've all come to the same conclusion that screen viewing, television viewing is a particular example, screen viewing can be a trigger for autism and it would be great if the medical community would take that more seriously. In fact, there was just a paper published by a French doctor in a journal just, I think, about a month ago, sort of talking about all the evidence and kind of the basic theory behind why this makes sense. And we got into a world where we're constantly now interacting with screens, too. That also sort of leads more questions around just devices in general. Well, right. So when I first wrote the paper with Sean, we were focused on television. You know, we're talking about children one, two, three years old. At that point, the screen viewing for those children was almost all television. But now when you look at the data, you see that the screen viewing for that age group isn't just television, it's iPads, it's phones. You know, that's why I refer to it as screens now rather than television. So this isn't the only time in which a personal experience has informed some of your professional life. In 2016, you gave a speech to the graduating MBA class where you discussed the life lessons taught to you by your father, who was a Holocaust survivor. Could you share with our listeners these lessons and discuss how they impacted you both as a parent and an educator? Well, let me just talk about a couple of them. One thing I took away from my father was perseverance, right? My father lost his whole family, wife, two children, brothers and sisters, parents. After the war, he came to this country. He had nothing and he got married, had a family, my brother has a PhD from Harvard. I went to MIT. We've both done well. And so I think about what my father went through. He was in Auschwitz. He was in Dachau. was on a death march between the camps and lost his whole family. And the ability to kind of push through and still have a productive life shows immense focus, immense perseverance on his part. And that's something I sort of try to take in my own life in terms of never give up, keep pushing. And that's kind of how I operated with my son after the diagnosis. So perseverance is one thing I took away. Another thing that I took away is risk-taking. So I don't take a lot of risks. But when I take a risk, I take it for a reason. And I think about my father. My father, he wasn't a big risk-taker, but he would tell a story. He didn't talk about the camps very much, but he would tell a story that at one point he was ill. He thought he was going to die. You know, there's not a lot of food in the, in the concentration camps for the people there. And he stole a bag of potatoes. If he had gotten caught, he would have been killed. So he took a risk. But he took a risk for a reason because he was going to die if he didn't get more food. And so that's another thing. So when I think about, I don't take risks for no reason. I take risks for a reason. So if I think about my autism research, it's a controversial thing to do. Why am I doing it? Well, I'm doing it because I think it's really important. I feel like, well, I'm taking a risk here in a sense, but if I'm right, and I can look at the literature and I can see that the medical community is not looking at this, if I'm right, huge societal return. That's a risk I think is worth taking. In fact, I think I would have had difficulty living with myself if I just sort of said, I'm pretty sure this is right and I'm not going to do anything about it. The last thing I'll mention that I learned from my father is family. You know, he lost his whole family in the camps. When he had a new family here, that family was very important to him. And I think particularly that his two sons did so well educationally. He was very proud of that, and it was very important to him. So I, I've sort of talked a little bit about research. You know, in terms of education, I think the other thing I'd sort of take away is just 
being the son of a Holocaust survivor, a concentration camp survivor, at least for me, kind of gave me a sense of, I want to be a good person. I want to treat people right. I take teaching very seriously, and I tell students what I'm going to do. I follow up. I try to treat everybody, you know, the secretaries, the students, in a good way. And so I don't think I treat anybody very differently now than I did when I was a young assistant professor back at UCLA. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. And so, Professor Waldman, thank you for your continued service to Cornell and to the Johnson School, and thank you for being a guest on Present Value. Okay, thank you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Gadi Arida, Matt Douglas, and Paul Whitco from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Jonathan Tin. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.